What does Harry S. Truman have to do with the Vietnam War? Up next on the Crossing Ideas Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Sassy. Welcome to the Crossing Ideas Podcast. The goal of my podcast is very simple, to use my vast experiences overseas as a lens of looking at the world of today. I've had a bunch of people in the past uh, tell me, hey, Mark, you should consider doing a podcast. You have that podcast kind of voice, whatever that means. And I was intrigued with the idea, but I had no idea what it was that I would want to communicate. And that came together much more recently when I started to really think about the world of today, which I'm very much invested in, and my experiences overseas, which have kind of molded and shaped me who I am today. And I thought, is there a way to blend those together? And I believe, hopefully, I've come up with a formula to do that in this podcast. Um, A little about myself. I've lived in uh, Vietnam for 10 years, uh, moving there in 1994 in the, might call the dark ages. We'll, we'll get into that uh, uh, much, much more uh, later on in, in, the, in this season. I lived in Malaysia for 11 years, and currently I am finishing up six years of working in Saudi Arabia. So I've lived a lot of my life overseas, experienced uh, many different things and have uh, always been fascinated with how different people kind of view the world. And so with the podcast, I wanted to start specifically with Vietnam. And mainly because it really did kind of change me in so many ways. Um, when, I, when I went to Vietnam, I, I delved into the, the history, the culture, the language. I learned the language. I, I, I learned the food, trust me. And uh, also, probably more importantly, I I learned that people view the world in different ways. There's this wonderful thing called value orientations. The East and the West have completely different ideas of how to view life, family, religion, um, many different things. And uh, that that really uh, opened my eyes to a lot of possibilities. And so I wanted to make sure as I started the podcast that it would absolutely begin on my experiences in Vietnam, and that will be season one. And my first episode is What You Don't Know About the Vietnam War, part one, Early Americans in Vietnam. Long title, I know. But I wanted to start with the war, and why is that? Well, as an American, I grew up learning nothing about Vietnam except the war. I mean, it was like this cloud hanging over this whole generation. And it continues to have a tremendous impact on America today. And how often do we hear terms like, oh, we're getting bogged down in another Vietnam. I mean, how many times have we heard that over the years? More than we would have cared to hear, that's for sure. Now, more recently, when you think of uh, the U.S. removing their troops, the withdrawal in Afghanistan in 2021, And you can't help but think of those heart-wrenching images of those people clinging on to the airplanes, trying to get away, trying to leave with the Americans. And when when, when I saw that, and I'm sure many people thought the exact same thing, I thought of Saigon, 1975, the, the U.S. Embassy, the helicopter 
people trying to grab onto the helicopter and leave as uh, the communists were, were taking over the South. There's, a, there's some parallels there um, that are quite, quite profound in more than one way. And so for these reasons, I wanted to uh, tackle the war first in the first two episodes. But, and then I'm going to get into much more personal interactions uh, from my time in Vietnam. So what you don't know about the Vietnam War. But before we get into that, let's start with what we do know about the Vietnam War. From an American perspective, we do know that 58,000 American soldiers lost their lives. Hard to imagine such a number. We can think of uh, those, we've see, all seen the, the war movies of Vietnam, the, the, the soldiers trudging through this humid, sticky, hot jungle and not knowing if there's a booby trap right in front of them, not knowing if there's the, the Viet Cong ready to attack on the left or right. The images are harrowing for sure. And, and, and we've seen all of those. That, that, that's kind of what probably many of us think about when we think of, of Vietnam. And we do know that we, were, we, as the American public, were lied to about the Vietnam War. Um, how many times did the administration in the 60s tell us, we, we are turning the corner, we are just about ready to show real progress? We all know that was a lie. Uh, there's a fascinating documentary called The Fog of War in 2003 where Robert McNamara kind of, it's kind of his mea culpa, kind of says, you know what, this is really what happened during that time. It's a fascinating piece of cinema and I, I would recommend that you check it out. We also know that we brokered a peace deal in 1975, the Paris Accords, which as Nixon said, peace with honor. But of course, those accords um, were never kept. We have the whole Watergate scandal that kind of uh, wrecked Washington over the next two years. And so by the time April 1975 rolled, rolled around, there was no way that America was going to try to interfere with the Viet Cong, with the communists, with the North, northern Vietnamese armies just absolutely overwhelming the armies of the South. Not that the armies of the South weren't big. They were. But that's a whole other story. And so that's what we do know about the Vietnam War. But maybe what you don't know is that this was not just Kennedy's war. Kennedy was the first one who sent advisors there, kind of ramped it up. This was not just Johnson's war, the one who really ramped it up in 1965 and started pouring uh, soldiers in. And this was not just Nixon's war. This, the Vietnam War, was also Harry Truman's war. Now, let's go back to uh, Vietnam 1945. And actually, there's a, there's a terrific book by uh, Vietnam historian David Marr, which simply is entitled Vietnam 1945. And if you're interested in that time era um, and Indochina and things that happened during that time period, highly recommend that you check out that book. It actually inspired me to write my master's thesis, uh, which was on the shifting policies of Roosevelt and Truman in 1945 towards Indochina. And no, I am not going to bore you to death by reading you my, my treaties. <laughs> not in the slightest. But let's, uh, let's delve into a few of, these, uh, few of these facts that you may not have known. Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh, of course, was the revolutionary leader of Vietnam. Today, he's known as Uncle Ho. 
He is the, the founder of modern day Vietnam. Um, we'll talk a lot about him uh, in, in the following episodes and things. Um, Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh was a pragmatist. Now, I had a Vietnamese teacher. His name was uh, Tay Khoi when I was living in Vietnam. And um, this was after I studied language for well over a year, and I was pretty fluent with the language. And uh, Tay Khoi was uh, this brilliant man who just knew everything about Vietnamese culture and, and uh, language and history and everything. And it came, I came to find out that his father was a contemporary of Ho Chi Minh in 1945, and his father was actually the education secretary in Ho Chi Minh's first cabinet. Now, this man is not a communist. His father was not a communist. This uh, Ho Chi Minh had put together this coalition, this broad democratic coalition, to appeal to a lot of different Vietnamese factions in order to bring unity against the French in hoping to establish independence. And so... When you think Ho Chi Minh, you might think communist, communist, communist. And yes, he was one, but he was much more of a pragmatist. And then where there is a pragmatist, oftentimes there's a useful tool for the advanced spy system of the United States. Now, in 1945, there was no CIA, but there was what was called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. And there's a little... Um, there, there, uh, north of Hanoi, there's a small little village called Tan Chao. And that was the secret home of uh, the Viet Minh, those who were fighting against uh, the Japanese during uh, World War II, during the, especially the end, end part of World War II. And the OSS, this precursor to the CIA, sent in paratroopers to Ho Chi Minh's camp at Tan Chau, north of Hanoi, to help train the Vietnamese against the Japanese. Now, where have we heard that before? America training a group which may one day turn and fight against America. All right, hold that thought. This is a, Tan Chau is a place that I visited in my time in Vietnam, fascinating place. And there's this amazing, amazing banyan tree with these huge, huge branches that reach out. They're so big that they have to support the branches by you know, these little pieces of wood that hold these massive branches that go out 100 feet or something. It's, it's incredible. And it was that same old banyan tree in 1945 where these American soldiers were meeting up with Ho Chi Minh and uh, General Zop and... Uh, all of the, the leaders of the, the, the Viet Minh, and they were training them. How did this happen? Oh, it's a, little, it's a fascinating story I'd like to briefly tell you. Um, there was, a, during those times, uh, the, at the tail end of World War II, there were a lot of American you know, air, air patrols over northern part of Vietnam. And... Um, at one point, one of these American planes was shot down by the Japanese. And the pilot survived. He parachuted out. And the Viet Minh, the, 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 the Ho Chi Minh's group, found him. And Ho Chi Minh personally walked this pilot 
back whole way north across the Chinese border into American headquarters in southern China. So that's how they got this connection. So Ho Chi Minh met the, met the commander up there and um, he even asked for his autograph. It was all this uh, really fascinating stuff. And so the OSS, this, uh, this, this spy group, said, hey, could we use these folks? Who, I don't, we, we don't really know who they are. We know that they have communist leanings, they have communist ties, but can we still use them to our benefit? Um, and they didn't really know who Ho Chi Minh was. Ho Chi Minh had, had many different uh, aliases over the years. He was in Paris for a long time writing anti-French communist propaganda. He even, believe it or not, waited tables at a hotel in Boston for a short period of time. Yes, it's, it's crazy. Uh, under many different names. And so they were a little bit unsure of who this Ho Chi Minh character actually was. But hey, he brought a soldier back to us. So they're, they're fighting against the Japanese. We're fighting against the Japanese. Can we use them? All right, so that's when they parachuted into Tanchao. And it's a, it's a fascinating scene. And actually, it was, it was so fascinating uh, of a scene for myself that I decided to write a whole book about it. I, I wrote my very third novel called The Reach of the Banyan Tree based upon those encounters of Ho Chi Minh and the Americans in uh, Tanchao in 1945. Uh, I'll leave the link down below in case you want to check it out at some time. Um, and so... We have this scene. Let, let, let's set the scene again. It's the summer of 1945. The Germans have already surrendered in World War II. We're still fighting against the Japanese in the Pacific theater. Indochina is up in the air. Indochina is, uh, consists of five different places, three of them in what we know as Vietnam uh, today. And this was before. For August. So August rolls around in 1945. August 6th, we have the bombing of uh, Hiroshima, the, the atomic bomb. August 9th, uh, the bombing of Nagasaki. And August 15th, Japanese surrender. So who's in charge of Vietnam? The Japanese have just surrendered. The French aren't there. They, they've been in disarray for a long time. What's going to happen? And so Ho Chi Minh, in this place north of Hanoi, decides this is the time. Let's do it. He leaves Tan Chao, goes into Hanoi, and some of those Americans followed him. So just picture these Americans with Ho Chi Minh going into the city. Now, people in Hanoi did not know who Ho Chi Minh was. Ho Chi Minh had never been in Hanoi ever in his life at that point. And so he set up this uh, place on uh, Hung Ngang Street. And no, I'm not going to expect you to rem remember the name of that street if you don't speak Vietnamese. Um, and he set up a little office work area so that he could meet the local Vietnamese to, to, to kind of introduce himself. And, the, the, you know, they came in and, who is this guy? And he took that time in mid-August, mid to late August of 1945, to write the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence. And basically, they, they set it up and says, we are going to declare independence. And on, and on September 2nd, 1945, 
they 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 went to Bading Square, the huge huge square in the in the in the you know northwestern part of of Hanoi. It's the nowadays if you go there, you'll see the Ho Chi Minh Mausoleum, where uh, you can actually go in and see Ho Chi Minh's embalmed body there. And uh, I have many uh, many memories of uh, Bading Square myself. There was even one time. I was, uh, there, there's always guards in, in front of the mausoleum and I was on my bicycle and I, I ride up and I just kind of stop. I had my camcorder, I got my camcorder out and I started, this is just a cool shot, I'm gonna take it. And then this, this uh, soldier is looking at me and is like, hey, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, uh, 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 uh. And he starts coming at me and I just get back on my bike and I just tear out of there and I made it safely, don't worry. They never tracked me down. Uh, <laughs> except I have a later episode uh, later in the later in the season that's called uh, "Me the Spy." Uh, wait, wait till you hear that one. Um, so I, I sped out of there, but but you can imagine this massive square. It was just absolutely packed of people, very curious to find out who this Ho Chi Minh was and what was going to be happening. And there was this almost this elated party kind of atmosphere with this massive amounts of of people from Hanoi. And right in the midst of the crowd, there are those Americans, those same Americans who traveled down with Ho Chi Minh to Hanoi. There they are, watching and listening. And listen to the opening words of the opening words of the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence. I'm just going to read this to you word for word. <clears throat> All right. All men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Um, haven't we heard that somewhere else before? Let me read the next two lines, and then I'll break it down for you. This immortal statement was made in the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America in 1776. In a broader sense, this means all the peoples on the earth are equal from birth. All the peoples have a right to live, to be happy and free. There you have it. Yes. Ho Chi Minh copied Thomas Jefferson's opening to the Declaration of Independence just to make those Americans in the crowd especially happy. Um, and I know for you history buffs that really know your stuff, you'll realize that some of those wordings was actually squeezed in, not by Jefferson, but somebody else. But that's completely beside the point, and maybe for another podcast another day. But he did it. He said those words because what he wanted was American support. He wanted the United States at the end of the war to back freedom, to back independence, to back the people who had worked the land for thousands of years rather than the French who exploited Vietnam as their premier colony for more than 80 years. He wanted American support more than anything else. And he knew probably only American support at the end of the war could allow them to be free and independent. Now, there's, there's a very weird fact of history that happened right during that declaration, right during that time of his speech. There was a U.S. warplane overhead, just making 
you know, random patrol like they normally do. And this U.S. airplane saw this massive crowd in Hanoi, and they had no idea what was going on. So the plane, this U.S. airplane, swoops down over the crowd of Hanoi to see what's going on. Now this massive crowd looks up, they see the American plane, they see the little white star, they know it's an American plane, and what do they do? They roar in approval. They roar in approval. They believed at the moment that the U.S. was sanctioning what was happening in Hanoi. That the U.S. was saying, we give our blessing to Vietnam independence. Yay, what a day. What a sad, ironic piece of information that turned out to be. Um, there were slogans in Saigon. Saigon is you know, now, as we know, Ho Chi Minh City. There were slogans in, in Saigon on, on September 2nd in the following days as they were reporting on the Declaration of Independence. And the slogans were, Long live the USA. Wow. Ho Chi Minh desperately wanted American support. Yes, as I said before, he was a communist. He was trained in the Soviet Union. He had many aliases. He produced much propaganda in Paris under different pseudonyms. But above all, he was a pragmatist that wanted the French to leave. That's it. And he wasn't the only one that wanted that. Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted the same thing. Now, I'm going to get into Roosevelt here for, uh, for a few minutes. Hindsight, as we know, is the easiest thing in the world. And I'm not going to pretend to, 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 to sit here today and say, oh, only if um, this should have happened, this should have happened. There are a lot of moving parts. And it is what it is. But as I researched this, I've always felt that, wow, I think there was a missed opportunity here. Um, but again, hindsight. You know, we're sitting here in 2023, and we, we, we understand what hindsight looks like, uh, especially when we're two years out from, you know, from the start of the, three, three, three years out from the start of the pandemic. And uh, it's easy to see the mistakes and the miscalculations and things along the way. Um, but for me, I, I always, I, I bring it down to one thing. What do you look for in a leader? And for me, it's principles. It's, it's someone that, that believes, understands, feels what is right and sticks to that. It's not somebody that puts their finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing. We have plenty of those types in Washington today. Now, Roosevelt. Roosevelt wasn't the perfect president. Um, my grandfather, whom I never had the privilege of meeting, his name was John Wesley Christie. I got my middle name from him. Uh, all I know about him, or one of the things I know about him, is that he hated Roosevelt. My mother would tell me how much he would complain about Roosevelt. And it's easy to look back and criticize many of the economic policies that, of the 1930s, which most likely prolonged the Great Depression. Um, but 
I will say about Roosevelt is that he approached the Great War with great resolve and with great principle. Um, what may not be well known is Roosevelt's view on Vietnam. Now, during that time, Vietnam wasn't necessarily called Vietnam. It was, it was, it was broken into three different, uh, three different uh, regions, and they were known as Tonkin in the north, Annam in, in the central part of Vietnam, and then Cochin China in, in the south. And those three made up three-fifths of what was Indochina, including uh, both uh, Laos and Cambodia. So, what do we know about Roosevelt's thoughts on Vietnam? Number one, we know that Roosevelt hated the French. That's an easy one. Number two, he thought, and he said this many times, he believed that the French had milked Vietnam for 80 years. And three, after the war, Roosevelt wanted to establish Vietnam as a U.S. protectorate, kind of in the same vein as the Philippines after the Spanish-American War uh, at, at the end of the 19th century. Roosevelt wanted to kick the French out after the war. He wanted to build up the country and work towards its independence. He said many things over the years about that. They're all documented. But Roosevelt died in April 1945, right before the, the, the VE Day, which was in May the following month. On the day that Roosevelt died, there were uh, newspaper reports in Saigon mourning his death. Roosevelt to Ho Chi Minh, I think to many of the Vietnamese people, was the hope for a post-war Vietnam, that it would be different. And if, if we could get to the end of the war and let Roosevelt have that time to, to, to see what could be made of Vietnam, well, maybe things would be a whole lot different. But, as fate had it, FDR died in April of 1945, and that brings us to Harry Truman taking over. Now, I am not one to fault Truman for what became of Vietnam. Um, he was dealt a very difficult hand. There's no doubt about that. And, um, and he made the best decisions he thought were necessary at the time, which included quickly reassuring the French of their rule in Vietnam. And on September 7th, just seven days after Ho Chi Minh declared the Declaration of Independence, U.S. vessels were transporting French troops back into southern Vietnam. Then the Chinese allied troops were coming south from the north, uh, from, from the southern part of China, and they were coming into northern Vietnam to keep the post-war peace. And suddenly Ho Chi Minh and his regime was kind of caught in the middle. What is going to happen? The U.S. helping the French back in. The Chinese are there. Who knows what's going to happen? And suddenly the Ho Chi Minh regime is marginalized. And Ho Chi Minh writes letters to Truman. They all went unanswered. 
And eventually in 1946, we have the Vietnamese declaring war, a war of resistance against the French. So the French came back in, took complete control of all three regions of Vietnam. And that led to the 1946 to 1954 French Indochina War. And <laughs> another crazy uh, fact of history is that war was completely bankrolled by, drumroll please, the United States of America. Hmm. We like to bank war roll, wars. Bank roll wars. I think I said that wrong. We like to bank roll wars, don't we? Wow. So you see how this works. We trained the Vietnamese. We trained Ho Chi Minh and his troops. And now we are paying the French to fight the Vietnamese that we just finished training. This is not going to end well, people. Do we understand that? A couple years go along, the war drags on. What's happening in China? 1949, the Chinese Communist takeover in mainland China. 1950 to 1953, we have the Korean War uh, kicking off as a absolutely a, 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 a way to stop the expansion of communism. The French-Indochina War ended in, at, with the French's defeat at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. We have the Geneva Convention, which splits Vietnam in half, which eventually leads to the Vietnam War as we know it. And it leads to Kennedy sending in advisors, Johnson escalating, Nixon bombing and trying to bring it to an end. It's easy. And I, and I feel compelled to wonder, would it have been different if FDR, if Roosevelt had survived in 45? Maybe. Maybe not. Of course, we'll never know. But would it have, what would have happened if we upheld a few common principles that FDR had? The right to a people, the right to a people's self-determination, the utter dislike of colonialism. Those principles laid out in the Declaration of Independence. What if we would have held up those principles at the end of 1945? Would there have been a chance? Would we have had a chance of avoiding the Vietnam War? The Vietnam War didn't start in the 1960s. Its roots, like that banyan tree in Tan Chau, reached far back into the past. It truly started in 1945. Now, it's safe to say that I, I used to be a typical hawk when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. You know, you, you hear those terms, the hawk versus the dove, the, the hawk, which are a little more aggressive, wanting to defend everything and be strong military. And the dove is like, oh, we need to not be so aggressive overseas and whatnot. I was definitely a hawk for a long time. But since my years in Vietnam and watching everything that has ensued since then, I have slowly changed away from that mode of thinking. And I've become very skeptical of it all. 
I'm skeptical of any politician who bangs the drum for yet another war. There are way too many Washingtonians that thrive off of what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. Too many are invested in the massive military budget. I personally would welcome a little more introspection in our foreign policy. I mean, you can't even question the military budget without seemingly damaging your patriotism, according to some people's point of view. I, I, you know, I'm not sure that we've really reimagined U.S. policy that much since the Vietnam War. Sure, there are some differences, and many will argue that one time period can't, can't be compared to the other. But yet, here we are. Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Ukraine. What's next? Taiwan? North Korea? John Quincy Adams said this. We, and his, we were talking about the United States, this, this beautiful um, entity that, that was created back in the 18th century. We... Do not go in search of monsters to destroy. Hmm. I wish that were the case today. And here's a, here's a closing thought for you. Why don't we get Main Street USA in order first before we're off chasing down the next monster? Thanks for listening. This is Mark Sassy. For the Crossing Ideas podcast. I'd love to hear your comments. Don't forget to subscribe to your favorite uh, podcasting outlet. Uh, check out the videos on uh, YouTube related to this episode. Up next, next episode, What You Don't Know About the Vietnam War, Part 2. And in this one, it'll be a little bit different. Um, what about the Vietnamese of the Vietnam War? We're looking at differing perspectives and personal experiences. Up next on the Crossing Ideas podcast. Thanks for listening.